Today, I'd like to talk about the flood. But it's not the flood you typically think of. This flood is not in your Bible. It did not occur thousands of years ago. And although this flood did cause tremendous devastation, by no means did the waters of this flood cover the entire earth. Rather, the flood I'm going to tell you about today occurred less than 150 years ago in the city of Johnstown, Pennsylvania, in the summer of 1889. Near the end of the 1800s, Johnstown was a booming coal and steel town filled with hard-working families. The town lay just 60 miles east of Pittsburgh, and due to the demand for steel, its population had grown to roughly 28,000 people. Johnstown, in many respects, was no different than many small towns in America. Now, up until a few years ago, I had never heard about this city and knew nothing about the flood that occurred there. But then I came across a book titled The Johnstown Flood by author and historian David McCullough, and suddenly my curiosity was piqued. Along with Pearl Harbor, the Titanic, and September 11th, the Johnstown flood ranks among the top 10 worst catastrophes in United States history. In fact, more people were killed in the Johnstown flood than were killed when the Titanic sank in 1912. Over 2,000 Americans lost their life in this single-day event that has largely been forgotten. So today I'd like to bring back the memory of this flood. Today I'd like to bring it back because contained within this story are vital lessons for our nation and for you, the people of God. You see, in order to prepare for the future, we as a nation must first remember and then learn from the past. You know, one thing I find curious about Americans is that we have incredibly short memories. And I'm not suggesting that Americans are bad at remembering what happened yesterday last week or a year ago. There, there's no problems there from that point of view. What I mean is that Americans are quick to forget the lessons of history. They're quick to forget what really matters in life and soon to resume the pursuits of the flesh. A good example of this is seen in church attendance statistics immediately following September 11th. According to a study conducted by the Barna Group, nationwide church attendance swelled by nearly 25% following 9-11, from 39% to 48%. But within a few months afterwards, those attendance levels dropped back down to pre-9-11 levels. According to another U.S. poll reported in the Jerusalem Post, a similar phenomenon also occurred during the COVID pandemic. While church doors were mostly closed during that time, Americans turned to reading their Bibles and watching sermons online. One survey reported that 40% of self-identified Christians said they were reading their Bible more than ever. And over one in five non-Christians said the crisis caused them to start reading the Bible and listening to sermons online, even though they normally never did. You know, it seems that when Americans experience great trouble, they frequently turn to God for answers. But after peace and well-being are restored, 
or at least appear to be restored, they quickly revert to their old ways. And oftentimes, as Mr. Diaz had pointed out last week, even worse. In this way, Americans are really no different than their ancestors. Manasseh, along with the other tribes of Israel, also turned to God when times got tough. But of course, once things appeared to be better, they would soon forget about God and begin to sin again. From sin to oppression to repentance to deliverance. This pattern was so common among the ancient Israelites that Bible students have even given it multiple names. You may have heard terms such as the Deuteronomic cycle, the cycle of redemption, or the cycle of sin. The Israelites would repeat this cycle for nearly 800 years, from Moses all the way to the time of Jeremiah, from the time they were freed from slavery in Egypt to the time that they were taken captive by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. The Israelites' inability to learn the lessons of history put them on a path of chronic suffering and would ultimately lead to their captivity. In the book of Jeremiah, the prophet warns about this cycle the Israelites keep repeating. Turn with me to Jeremiah 13, Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 15 through 16. Jeremiah chapter 13. Notice what Jeremiah admonishes the people here to do. He says, Jeremiah 13, 15, Hear and give ear. Do not be proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he causes darkness and before your feet stumble. Jeremiah warns the Israelites to change their ways before trouble comes. He knows that if they do not listen and change, that they will suffer greatly. Verse 17, but if you will not hear it, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. You know, one thing I find fascinating about the flood of 1889 is like so many tragedies throughout history, the devastation could have been prevented. Not a single person needed to lose their life that day from flooding. The city of Johnstown was built in a valley between two rivers that converge at the edge of town. The rivers drained snowmelt from the mountains, and the residents of Johnstown were accustomed to the rivers flooding. At least once a year, the rivers overflowed, filling the streets with water. So when the floods began in the afternoon of May 31st, 1889, Many people gathered themselves and their belongings in the upper stories of their homes. And just as they had done many times before, they planned to simply wait things out. What they did not know was that this time things would be much worse than ever before. You see, roughly 14 miles up the Connemaw River was a water reservoir with an earthen dam known as the South Fork Dam. The South Fork Dam stood over 70 foot tall and held back more than 20 million tons of water. The dam was owned by the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club and had been built up over the years to create a lakeside resort for some of the wealthiest people in the nation. Members of the South Fork Club included men such as Andrew Carnegie, Philander Knox, Henry Clay Frick, and Andrew Mellon. Over the years, the dam had experienced numerous leaks and false alarms. And one man in particular was very concerned about the dam's stability. His name was Daniel J. Morell. 
As general manager of the Cambria Iron Company, Mr. Morell was one of the Johnstown's most influential citizens and was himself a member of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club. In 1880, Mr. Morell sent his top engineer, John Fulton, along with several associates to inspect the dam. Mr. Fulton issued a report on his findings, which, which was shared with those responsible. In Mr. Fulton's report, several serious elements of danger were identified. Now, as you might expect, Mr. Fulton's report was not well received by the South Fork owners. In fact, they went and commissioned their own counter-report and then used it to refute his claims. Needless to say, nothing meaningful was done. Not willing to give up, though, Mr. Morell, on behalf of the Cambria Iron Company, offered to help pay for the dam's repairs. Unfortunately, this offer was also rejected. You know, whether in life, at work, or wherever you find people, most people, they really don't want to be told that they're wrong. And because people don't like correction, they will often seek out a person who will tell them what they want to hear. Not only did Mr. Morell and Mr. Fulton witness this with the dam owners they, who, they, who commissioned their own report, the prophet Jeremiah experienced this as well. Turn with me to Jeremiah 5, verse 31. Jeremiah 5, verse 31. Now, as you know, the prophet Jeremiah was sent by God to warn the people of Judah that if they did not repent, they would be taken captive. His prophecy was both for the people during his time as well as for the future nations of Israel, including the United States and British Commonwealth. As Jeremiah was delivering this warning message, many false prophets appeared delivering a message that was directly contrary to his. Notice Jeremiah 5, verse 31. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power, and my people love to have it so. God's basically saying, Jeremiah saying, the people of Israel wanted to believe a lie. They didn't want to hear what God or the prophet Jeremiah was telling them. They wanted their own prophets, their own priests, those who tell them everything you are doing is okay. There isn't a need to change your ways. But notice what God rhetorically asked the Israelites at the end of this verse. But what will you do in the end? You may like what the prophets and priests are telling you, but if it's not the truth, if it's not accurate, where is that going to leave you? It's always better to face the truth than to ever believe the lie. Ask yourself, what's more important to you? The truth or what you want to hear? The truth or your pride? These are important things that we don't allow to let blind us. Now here's a picture of the South Fork Dam prior to 1889. When you look at this picture, it's a very pleasant day. The setting is quaint. Everything looks just perfectly fine. In the city of Johnstown, many years would pass with days like this, with nothing alarming happening. Each year, the dam did not fail, 
the people of Johnstown became more and more confident that there was no reason to be concerned. Victor Heiser, who was his family's sole survivor after the flood, would later recall this, and I'm quoting from a book titled The A History of Pennsylvania. Mr. Heiser said the townspeople grew calloused to the possibility of danger. Sometime they thought the dam will give way, but it won't happen, ever happen to us. Nope, not in their lifetime, they thought. Needless to say, worries about the dam became a local joke. People would laugh at the suggestion at its failure. And for those who did worry about its demise, they were often mocked and regarded as fools. You know, one thing I find interesting about the prophet Jeremiah is how he was ridiculed and laughed at for delivering this warning message. Turn with me to Jeremiah 20, verse 7. Uh, Jeremiah 20, verse 7. I'm going to read from the NIV, starting about midway through the verse. So in Jeremiah 20, verse 7, Jeremiah writes, picking up sort of towards the end of the verse, I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. You know, it's not easy telling people that if they don't repent, they will suffer severely. A lot of people, they don't like correction. And they will often react very negatively, and they certainly did against Jeremiah. Verse 9, but if I say I will not mention him, meaning God, or speak any more of his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. The ridicule Jeremiah endures is so severe, he contemplates no longer delivering God's message. But of course, Jeremiah's passion for the truth won't let him hold it in. Deep down, Jeremiah knows, he knows that as a servant of God, it's his job. And it's a job that cannot be ignored. You know, if you stop and think about what that means for us as a church today, we certainly know that telling people to repent, it's not going to be a popular message. It's something that's not easy to deliver. More often than not, it's not going to be well-received. But just because it's not easy, it doesn't mean we can ignore it. If there's one thing everyone here understands or should understand is that being a person of God isn't about choosing to do things that are easy. We choose things because they are right. In the early morning of May 31st, 1889, it was noticed that the reservoir waters were rapidly rising. A quick calculation was made, and it was estimated that the water was raising four to six inches per hour. Now, at that rate, the waters would begin to spill over the dam, they calculated, about by mid-afternoon. And because it was an earthen dam, not made of concrete, there was little doubt what would happen next. Water rushing over the top will quickly erode the earth away. The more erosion that occurs, the more water will rush out. And the more water that rushes out, the faster the erosion occurs. A vicious cycle is created until eventually a large section of the dam gives way. To warn the people of Johnstown, a young engineer named John Park was sent to the nearest town. His job was to quickly get a telegraph message to the people of the city. He and the telegraph operator successfully sent out three messages that day. Their first message went out around 11 a.m., 
Their last message went out nearly four hours later around 3 p.m. After 3 p.m., the floodwaters had taken out the telegraph lines and no more messages could be sent or probably at that point wouldn't have been helped. This telegraph sounder here is one of the artifacts owned by the Johnstown Flood Museum. It is believed that this device may have been used to transmit John Park's three warning messages. Turn with me to Ezekiel 3, Ezekiel 3, verse 17 through 19. Ezekiel 3, verse 17 through 19. You know, the prophet Jeremiah wasn't the only servant of God to issue a warning to the people of Judah. In addition to Jeremiah, Obadiah and Ezekiel also prophesied of the defeat of Jerusalem and the downfall of the southern kingdom. But let's read now. Ezekiel 3, verse 17 through 19. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Now this word watchman here is translated from the Hebrew word safa, which according to Strong's literally means to lean forward, to peer into the distance. Verse 17 again. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way. He shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. When it comes to the church and what we should be doing today, some people may say, well, 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 hang on here. We've been delivering a warning message for decades. And yet all things continue as they were. Why should we keep repeating this warning message over and over again when it's taking so long to fulfill? I mean, isn't this like crying wolf? Well, it's a very good question. But consider for a moment how long Jeremiah prophesied. You don't need to turn there, but in Jeremiah 1, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, verses 2 and 3, it says that Jeremiah began his ministry in the 13th year of King Josiah's reign, and he continued it through the 11 years of Zedekiah. Now, King Josiah reigned 31 years, so minus 13, that yields 18 years. After Josiah came, Jehoiahaz, and Jehoiakim yielding another 11 years. And finally came Jehoiachin and Zedekiah adding 11 more years. If you add it all up, you'll find that Jeremiah delivered a message warning the Israelites of impending doom for 40 long years. You know, what's even more, more remarkable is that the warning message didn't even begin with Jeremiah. Before Jeremiah, there were other prophets who were warning the nation, such as Micah and Isaiah. From at least the time of King Uzziah to the defeat of Jerusalem under Zedekiah, a span of roughly 150 years, the people of Jerusalem had been warned. Now, 
this may seem like a very long time to give a warning, to span literally multiple generations. And from man's perspective, it certainly is. But, you know, we must consider these things from God's perspective. I mean, from God's perspective, would you really expect anything less? Consider, if God is going to bring about horrific destruction because of man's sins, if people are going to suffer more than they've ever suffered before, don't you think that God, in his loving mercy, is going to give many warnings over the course of many years, even decades, perhaps centuries. God has done this in the past. Why should it be any different today? In terms of the South Fork Dam's demise, it took a very long time. From 1852, 1852, when the dam was completed, until the summer of 1889, 37 years had passed. The rivers of Johnstown regularly flooded. So on Friday, May 31st, 1889, when the waters began to rise again, instead of fleeing, many people simply rolled up their carpets, stacked their furniture, and headed to the second floor of their homes. For those who did head to higher ground, they expected to soon be walking sheepishly back into town where doomsdayers were often laughed at. Unfortunately, this time, there was no laughing. Fourteen miles upstream, the South Fork Dam gave way. The warnings of Doc Daniel, Mur Daniel Morell and John Fulton, which they had delivered over so many years, had finally come to fruition. John Park's telegraph me message on that day also made little difference. In this picture, you can see the break in the dam and tell how it washed away from the center. Boiling with huge chunks of debris, a 35-foot wave came tearing down the valley, leveling nearly everything in its path. People described the sound of water like the roar of thunder. Soon after event, one man recounted how when word was brought that the dam was in danger, he told his wife and children to come with him. The floodwaters were already deep in the streets, in the passage difficult. So his wife laughed at him. She told him the dam would be all right. They had experienced many floods like this before. The man urged his wife, order, he did everything but else but take her up and carry her out in his arms. But she refused to come. Finally, he set the example and dashed out through the water, calling to his wife to follow. As his feet began to touch rising ground, he saw the wall of water coming down the valley. He climbed up the bank in terror and reaching solid ground, turned just in time to see the water strike his house. His wife and eight children did not make it. Although many homes were ripped apart by the flood like the man's I just described, this particular home was somehow managed to stay intact. Now, I find this picture to be especially interesting because if you look very closely, and it's hard to see from a distance, but if you look closely at it, you can see how high the water rose. There is a high water mark running across the second floor. The damage and devastation from the dam's failure was incredible. It would be the biggest news since the assassination of President Lincoln. It would also be the worst catastrophe of the United States of the 1800s. 
Over 2,000 people lost their life that day in this single event. A New York Times article written on May 31, 1889, said this about the flood. An appalling catastrophe is reported from Johnstown, Cambria County, the meager details of which indicate that the city of 25,000 inhabitants has been practically wiped out of existence and that hundreds, if not thousands, of lives have been lost. A dam at the foot of a mountain lake eight miles long and three miles wide broke at four o'clock this afternoon just as it was struck by a water spout, and the whole tremendous volume of water swept in a resistless avalanche down the mountainside. The flood swept like a tidal wave over 20 feet in height to Johnstown, six or eight miles below. Gathering forces, it tore through the wider channel and quickly swept everything before it. Houses, factories, and bridges were overwhelmed in the twinkling of an eye, and with their human occupants were carried in a vast chaos down the raging torrent. The water began flowing over the dam or abutment at the weakest part of the mountain lake at about one o'clock when Johnstown and people down the valley were warned by messengers to look out for a flood as the result of a water spout. Three hours later, the whole end of the lake gave way, sweeping everything before it, railroads, bridges, and telegraph lines. A special dispatch says, Johnstown is completely submerged and the loss of life is inestimable. Houses are going down the river by dozens and people can be seen clinging to the roofs. Now this picture here is of a landmark recounting the history and devastation of the flood that's, I guess, set up outside the city. In his book titled An American Doctor's Odyssey, Victor Heiser, who I quoted from earlier, wrote this about the flood. This was his experience. My eyes were stunned by the most terrifying noise I had ever heard in my 16 years of life. The dreadful roar was punctuated with a succession of tremendous crashes. I stood for a moment bewildered and hesitant. I could see my mother and father standing at an upper window in the house. My father, frantic with anxiety over my safety, was motioning me urgently toward the top of the building which was away from his house. From my perch, I could see a huge wall advancing with incredible rapidity down the diagonal street. It was not recognizable as water. It was a dark mass in which seethed houses, freight cars, trees, and animals. As this wall struck Washington Street broadside, my boyhood home was crushed like an eggshell before my eyes, and I saw it disappear. Now the barn Victor was on, was also wrenched from its footings. But somehow he managed to stay on top. Barreling down the valley on top of this barn roof, Victor eventually was able to leap onto a stationary, another stationary rooftop. There he and 19 other people safely waited out the remainder of the flood. Victor was the only member of his family to survive. You know, at the beginning of this message, I referenced some of the worst catastrophes our nation has faced in its roughly two centuries of history. Disasters such as Pearl Harbor, the Titanic, and September 11th. Yet as horrible as these disasters and the Johnstown flood may have been, they don't begin to compare with events that will befall our nation at the time of the end. In the book of Jeremiah, God calls this coming calamity the time of Jacob's trouble. Turn with me to Jeremiah 30. Jeremiah 30, verse 4. 
Now, as you're turning there, recall that Jeremiah started prophesying literally decades before the southern kingdom of Judah was overcome by the Babylonian Empire. But over a century before this, the northern kingdom, the other part, the, 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 the ten tribes of Israel, which are typically referred to as Israel, had already been taken captive by the Assyrians. Notice Jeremiah 30, verse 4. Now these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. So here we have this prophecy that's written to both Israel and Judah. And yet, Israel, when Jeremiah was giving this prophecy, had already been taken captive. It was no longer a nation. It was gone. So this is clearly a prophecy for the future, not just Jeremiah's time. Half the people referenced wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't apply to at, during his time. You know, when the prophets refer to the house of Israel, they can be referring to one of multiple groups. They can be referring to all 12 tribes of Israel, the northern 10 tribes, which excludes Judah and Benjamin, or only Ephraim and Manasseh. And we, we know that they can, Israel can refer to Ephraim and Manasseh because, if you recall, Israel's name was bestowed upon Joseph's two sons. Because this verse references both Israel and Judah, and they're part of this prophecy, we know that Manasseh, our country, the United States, will be part of this prophecy. Verse 5. For thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor, and all faces turn pale? You know, it's been said that childbirth is one of the most painful experiences for a woman. And yet, here are men as though they are in labor. The unnaturalness of this scene portrays a level of pain beyond comprehension. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble. The time of Jacob's trouble is a time of incredible suffering, a time for which nothing in human history is equivalent. Skip down to verse 15. God asked the people, Why do you cry about your affliction? Your sorrow is incurable. Because of the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased, I have done these things to you. What Judah and Israel will experience will be absolutely horrific. They will cry bitterly. But at the same time, they've been warned about this and told to repent for many years. So while it is God who punishes the Israelites... It is actually the Israelites who bring this trouble on themselves. God will use a cruel and heartless nation, a nation whose sin exceeds even the Israelites, to inflict the punishment. But you must realize that God doesn't do this because he doesn't care about the people of Israel. Quite the contrary. God does this with a loving purpose of teaching them what they need to learn for a complete healing. We'll see later how this great tragedy result in an even greater triumph. Skip down to verse 24. Notice a time frame referenced here. Jeremiah 30, verse 24. The fear saying of the Lord will not return until he has done it, and until he has performed the intents of his heart in the latter days, 
you will consider it. This time of Jacob's trouble is set, obviously, in the latter days. Now, considering the time frame and the statement about how that day will be one of unprecedented suffering, we can connect this prophecy in Jeremiah to a prophecy given by Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, as well as a prophecy given by Jesus Christ in Matthew 24, verse 21. There's other prophecies we can connect it to, but at least, you know, at least these three. Let's turn to this prophecy given by Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. Matthew 24, verse 20, 21. Jesus Christ says, For then there will be great tribulation, Great tribulation, such as has never been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Now, because both this scripture here in Matthew 24 and, and Jeremiah 30 describe a time of suffering like none other in history, throughout history, and because they were both set near the time of the end, we know that these two passages, of course, refer to the same prophecy. Skipping down now to verse 37. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. For as the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man, that's Jesus Christ, be. Although the earth will never again be destroyed by a worldwide flood, a great tribulation is coming to this world. And for those who are not heeding the warnings, who are not turning to God with all their heart, it will come suddenly and will result in the gravest of tragedies. That time of suffering will be worse than any other time in history. Still, we can be thankful. We can be thankful because while it is the time of the end, it's not going to be the end of the story. You see, while Jesus Christ, Daniel, and Jeremiah prophesied about a great tribulation, they also foretold another day. The good news is that after the time of Jacob's trouble, there will come a time so wonderful, it will make the dark days worth it all. After the flood of 1889, the residents of Johnstown and the surrounding communities began rebuilding the city and their personal lives. Clara Barton, founder of the American Red Cross, was one of those who helped give aid to the victims of the disaster. On June 5, 1889, just days after the flood, Ms. Barton arrived in the devastated city. Over the coming months, she and many Red Cross workers would help roughly 25,000 people get their lives back in order. In addition to giving out food, furniture, and supplies, the American Red Cross built Red Cross hotels, such as the one pictured here. Formerly successful businessmen, now homeless from the flood, soon flooded into this hotel's doors. The hotel was such a success, other Red Cross hotels were built soon after. The extensive news coverage the Red Cross received during the Johnstown relief efforts helped establish the Red Cross as one of the primary relief agencies in the United States. 
and Ms. Barton would go down in history as one of the world's greatest humanitarians. The young man, Victor Heiser, would also go on to make a difference in the world. He left Johnstown, went to college, and eventually became a physician. As a public health official for the Rockefeller Foundation, Heisler circled the earth 17 times on medical missions. His development of the first effective treatment for leprosy is credited with saving as many as two million lives. Turn back to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah 30. Let's read about what God has planned for the people of Israel and Judah. While it's a very sad story, it has a very happy ending. Jeremiah 30, reading in verse 10. Jeremiah 30, let's read verse 10. Therefore, do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar, and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest, and be quiet, and no one shall make him afraid. For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you. But I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. Skipping down now to verse 17. For I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds, says the Lord, because they called you an outcast, saying, This is Zion, no one seeks her. Verse 18, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places. The city shall be built upon its mound and the palace shall remain according to its own plan. Then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry. I will multiply them and they shall not diminish. I will also glorify them and they shall not be small. Despite great suffering looming ahead for the people of the United States, Great Britain, and modern-day Israel, an even greater recovery is just around the corner. Like the city of Johnstown, the earth will be rebuilt. But far better than anything the people of Johnstown experience, a new king will rule over the earth, and true peace and safety will reign over the land. Dropping down now to verse, chapter 31, verse 3, chapter 31, verse 3. The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. You shall again be adorned with your tambourines, and shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. You shall yet plant vines on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and eat them as ordinary food. Now, please pay particular attention to this next verse, verse 6. For there shall be a day when the watchman, the watchman will cry on Mount Ephraim, Arise and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. Despite our knowledge of extremely dark days ahead, we can be thankful that out of great tragedy will come an even greater triumph. God will heal his broken world and you, God's faithful servants, will take an active part in establishing his kingdom here on earth. Concluding now in verses 11 and 12, For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil. 
for the young of the flock and the herd. Their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more.